flawed human logic looks at my own sin and my own wretchedness and my own failings and says, it's impossible for me ever to be right with God. But God says, I am the one who justifies the ungodly. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue in Romans chapter 4 as Tom continues a series titled A Portrait of Faith. The Apostle Paul uses the Old Testament figure Abraham as an illustration of what it means to be justified by faith before a holy and just God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Like Abraham, we as Christians rest in the promises of God, and we believe that he will act in accordance with what he has said in his word. Tom will go into the details in today's message, showing what true faith looks like. It means to have a sure confidence in God's promises. Are you entrusting your life to those promises, friend? Let's join Tom as he opens God's Word now, here on The Word Unleashed. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now notice how he describes believers here. Those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Here we're talking about the effectual call. God calls us to Himself through the Gospel. For those whom he foreknew, that doesn't mean God just knew about us ahead of time. If you trace that through the Old Testament, if you trace it in passages like chapter 11, verse 2 of Romans, 1 Peter 1, you discover that this word foreknew is to predetermine a relationship. To predetermine a relationship. For those whom God predetermined to have a relationship with, he also predestined, that is predetermined our destiny, to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, here it is, He also called. That day when you really heard the gospel, and the Father drew you to Himself, He called you. And these whom He called, He also justified. At the moment of salvation, declared you just before Him through the work of Christ. And these whom He justified, notice this, He also will glorify No, he glorified. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're not glorified yet. Why would Paul use the same tense? It's the same thing. We worship a God who calls that which does not yet exist as though it existed. Because in his mind, it's as good as done. We are as good as glorified. It will happen. Go over to chapter 9. Verse 23. God wanted to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Notice verse 24, even us whom He called. This is the effectual call. When you heard the gospel and came, not among, from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And then He changes to a different kind of call. Verse 25, as He says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not My people, My people. He calls the things that don't yet exist as though they exist. 
and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, these are Gentiles, there they shall be called sons of the living God. God is the one who calls things that don't exist as though they already existed. Because in his mind, it's an accomplished plan. Do you understand what this means? It means 4,000 years ago, when God made the promise to Abraham that through him, there would be spiritual descendants all over this planet, God was giving Abraham a promise about you. Now, come back to chapter 4, because I don't want you to miss the larger point Paul's making. What's his point in verse 17? What could persuade a 99-year-old man to believe that he and his 90-year-old wife would have a son? And what would convince him that through this yet-to-be-born son, he would have many physical descendants, but also many spiritual descendants, as many as the sand? And how could he ever believe the promise that through one of his descendants, the seed, would come salvation. That one descendant would be the Redeemer, as Galatians 3 talks about it, the seed which is the Messiah. How in the world did Abraham, who had no children, come to believe such an outlandish promise? And Paul's answer is because of the character and nature of the God in whom he believed. Notice verse 17. He believed God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now let me apply this to you. When it comes to God's promises to you in the gospel, the promise of justification, the promise that you as an ungodly sinner, if you will repent and believe in the work of Jesus Christ, in His perfect life lived in your place, in His death died to satisfy the justice of God for you, if you will believe in Him, the only reason you will ever do that is because your faith is rooted and grounded in God's character. You will only believe if you understand that the God that you're believing never lies. And that He never changes His mind. And that He has the power to do whatever He decides to do. Notice verse 21. Being fully persuaded that what God had promised, He was able also to perform. Listen, if you understand those things about God, then it's not irrational and unreasonable to believe God's promises in the gospel. In fact, it's His power and ability to act that throughout the Scripture is used as the foundation of faith. Abraham, in Genesis 18, you remember the story? In Genesis 18, three men show up at Abraham's tent. One of them turns out to be the second person of the Trinity and the other two angels. And this is what the Son of God says to Abraham in Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Listen, if you understand who God is, then this is not a problem. By the way, the same is true with the gospel, the fuller expression of the gospel that comes in the New Testament. What happens in Luke one thirty-seven when the angel Gabriel shows up at Mary's home and tells her she's going to have the Messiah, the one who will accomplish salvation and redemption for his people? 
You know what Gabriel says to her? Luke 1.37, nothing will be impossible with God. Listen, this is no problem for God. God enabling His Son to become fully human is not a problem if you're God. Nothing is too hard for God. Having Jesus live a perfect life as a human being and live truly as one of us, this is not a problem for God. Virgin birth, not a problem for God. Dying as our substitute to satisfy the justice of God, not a problem if you're God. Nothing is impossible with God. You see, God's character makes your confidence in the gospel reasonable because He gives life to the dead, to Christ in the resurrection, to our dead souls in regeneration. He calls into being that which does not exist. He calls those who are not yet His people, His people, because He knew them from eternity past, and He set His love upon them, and He will call them to Himself and justify them and glorify them. Our faith in the gospel is like Abraham's, rooted in God's character. There's also a lesson here, though, for our walk of faith as believers. This is really important. Like Abraham, our faith grows stronger the more we understand about the one who promised. If you're sitting here this morning and you have to admit to yourself, you know, my faith is kind of weak. I I just struggle and, and I'm not... I'm not what I want to be. I know I'm not what God wants me to be. I, I'm a true believer, but, but I just struggle along. Understand that the only way your faith will ever grow stronger is by learning more about the God whom you believe. And how do you do that? Through learning about Him in Scripture. That's it. That's the only way. So when you read your Bible daily, and you ought to read your Bible daily, don't just be checking the box. Don't be saying, got that over with, put it back in the drawer and walk away. No, as you read the Bible, be looking for your God. Who is He? What is He like? What does He do? What is He capable of? And the more you understand about the God you claim to believe in, the stronger your faith will grow in His Word. There's a third quality of saving faith, and that is that saving faith is a certain hope in God's promise. Not only is saving faith a biblical faith and rooted in God's character, but thirdly, it is a certain hope in God's promise. Verse 18, in hope he believed. Now, hope and faith are often companions in the New Testament. I won't belabor this. Let me just show you a couple of examples right here in Romans. Look at chapter 5, verse 2 through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, there it is, into this grace in which we stand, and we exult, therefore, in hope of the glory of God. Look at chapter 15, Romans 15 and verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope. So you've got believing and hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Often, they're united in Scripture. Now, I think the first thing we have to do is clean our minds of a misconception of hope. You see, New Testament hope is not like the English word hope. 
When we use the English word, we mean to speak of something that we wish would happen, but is extremely unlikely. Let's assume for a moment, and I think this is possible this year, that the Cowboys make it to the Super Bowl. That's probably not an unfounded hope. It's possible. But they make it to the Super Bowl, and, and um, you're watching the game. Of course, you recorded it on your DVR so you can be at church that evening, and then you're watching it with friends after. I just want to get that plug in. Um, that's why God created DVRs. But, <laughs> but you're watching the Super Bowl, and there, there are five seconds left. And the Cowboys are one point behind with five seconds left. And they have scratched and clawed their way into what would amount to be the longest field goal that the kicker has ever made in his career. He's never made a longer, or uh, never made this field goal in his career. And on top of the impossible length of the field goal and the pressure of that moment in the Super Bowl, the other team's coach calls a timeout just to ice him. So you with your family are sitting there on the couch and you're anticipating the end of the commercial break and and then the television comes back on, they're lining up for the kick and you're all sitting on the edge of your sofa and just as he's prepared to kick the ball, what do you say? I hope he makes it. There's a lot of desire, but there's a high degree of uncertainty. When you read the Bible, that is never what the word hope means. Get that idea out of your mind. Biblical hope refers to something that is absolutely certain, but not yet realized. It is the joyful, confident expectation of what you are assured you will receive. So, faith then is believing God and acting on it. Hope is living in the certain anticipation that you will receive what God has promised, even though you've not yet received it. Let me illustrate it this way. If, if you had an elderly uncle who were to send you a letter promising you a huge inheritance, at first you may not believe the letter, maybe because you, you know the man not to have any money, or maybe you know that he's struggling with sanity, or maybe you know him to be a chronic liar. But if based on what you know about this uncle and his circumstances, and his own personal wealth, if based on his trustworthiness, you come to believe him, you believe the letter that you're going to inherit his fortune, from that moment on, you will live in biblical hope that you will receive that inheritance. It's a certainty. You believe it, and therefore you live in hope, in eager expectation of receiving that inheritance. That's the relationship of faith and hope. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now think about Abraham. For 99 years, this man was called Abram. You know what Abram means? It means father of many. 99 years, he and Sarah had no children. But for 99 years, every time somebody called his name, it came out, the father of many. And so when he's 99, God shows up and says, Abram, we're going to change your name. To which I'm sure Abraham breathed a huge sigh of relief. Finally, because you can imagine how many times people laughed when he was introduced as the father of many. And he has no children between him and Sarah. 
And so God says, we're going to change your name. And so it's not going to be Abram anymore. It's going to be Abraham. You're no longer going to be called the father of many. You're going to be called the father of many nations. You know what Abraham did? He changed his name and he announced it to all of his friends and family. That's hope. He believed God and he was hoping in the biblical sense, eagerly expecting that reality, and he lived in light of it. And yet, he didn't receive every promise that he was promised in this life. In fact, Hebrews 11 says he died without receiving all the promises. In other words, there were certain promises that he lived his whole life in hope. And that's so encouraging because you and I live our whole lives in hope as well. Turn over to chapter 8, Romans 8. And notice verse 23. Not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now, we were adopted at the moment of salvation. God adopted us as sons. He's talking here about the culmination, the finalization of that adoption that entails what? The redemption of our bodies. Our adoption is fully complete, when we are like Jesus Christ, body and soul. And we're waiting for that. And we live in hope of that. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. We live in hope of that reality. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Once what you hope for arrives, you don't have hope anymore because you have it. But if we hope for what we do not see, here's how we live. With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. It's certain. We know it's coming. We just eagerly anticipate it, like that inheritance. That's how true faith functions. It perseveres in hope. Joyful, certain confidence that we will receive what God promised. That's hope. And that's the response of faith. There's a fourth quality of faith here, very briefly. Saving faith is contrary to human expectations. It's contrary to human expectations. Look again at verse 18. In hope, and then you notice I skipped this, in hope, against hope, he believed. The leading Greek lexicon defines that expression, against hope, as, quote, contrary to all human expectations. John Calvin says, the meaning is that when he had no grounds for hope, Abraham still relied in hope on the promise of God. In other words, Abraham had every reason humanly to give up on having a child through Sarah, but he clung to the promise. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. That which was spoken to him, so shall your descendants be. That quotation in verse 18 comes from Genesis 15.5. The promise made when Abraham was 85 and Sarah was 75 and they had no children. It was against human hope. His faith flew in the face of all normal human expectations and calculations. In other words, he believed God because faith always demonstrates its humility by believing God's Word instead of relying on human logic. 
Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that Abraham's faith was irrational or a blind leap of faith. It certainly wasn't that. Faith in God's Word is never irrational or in conflict with reason. But after all, what could be more rational than believing your Creator? At the same time, let's admit that God's Word often runs contrary to man's sinful, fallen, flawed logic. There's so many examples of this in the culture. Let's just take one. Disciplining children. Human logic today says that physically disciplining your child, even with control and, and with care and with love, phys- physically disciplining your child is an act of violence that will cause the child to in turn be violent. Now, obviously, if you're, if you're out of control, if you're doing it in anger, if you're, if you're abusing the child, if you're beating the child, then clearly that may be true. But if there is a kind, controlled, measured physical discipline of a child, God says, Proverbs 13, 24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he, whom he, who, he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? Here, what God says is out of step with flawed human logic. Faith believes God. Now, in this passage, the stress is not on disciplining children. The stress is on justification. And what does flawed human logic say about justification? Flawed human logic says, I have to try to earn my standing before God by my own effort, my own righteousness. God says, no, you're going to be made right with me through the work of another, my son, Jesus Christ. Flawed human logic looks at my own sin and my own wretchedness and my own failings and says it's impossible for me ever to be right with God. But God says, I am the one who justifies the ungodly. Who are you going to believe? You see, on the surface, what seems more unlikely? Promising a 99-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife that they're going to have a son? Or promising a lifelong sinner and rebel against God that he, can, he or she can be declared right with God in a moment by believing in the finished work, the life and death of Jesus the Messiah. True saving faith believes God even when it's contrary to human expectation and to flawed human logic. True faith takes God at His bare word. Is that your faith? Do you read what God says? And do you believe it? Or do you rationalize and argue with God? Faith understands and accepts the bare word of God against all flawed human logic, even its own. That's faith. The question is, is that your kind of faith? Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of his series, A Portrait of Faith. Tom will bring you part five on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, Tom, what is the primary lesson we can learn from Paul using Abraham's faith as an illustration of true saving faith? You know, Bill, this passage really serves as the litmus test of true saving faith. Here in Romans 4, Paul describes the biblical faith that was the means by which Abraham was justified. 
And it's important for us to understand because it becomes a kind of mirror or a, or a yardstick for us to individually examine our own faith to see if we have true biblical saving faith. If our faith is like Abraham's, then we have true saving faith. And, and we can rejoice in the fact that God has been gracious to us and has called us to himself. And we enjoy true justification, a right standing before God. But if we examine our faith and it's not like Abraham's, then we need to understand that and we need to repent and believe in the true gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can be saved in the same way that Abraham was justified. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 